0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Swamp Gothic, the podcast that takes a look at the folklore, legends, and stories of the Deep South. I'm your host, Rob Pickering. Now, I was born and raised in the heart of the Cajun country, Lafayette, Louisiana, so I grew up hearing all the stories about the creatures that supposedly inhabit the swamp and the legends unique to that part of the country. As a result, I've always had a fascination with all things strange, paranormal, and supernatural. Also, being in relatively close proximity to New Orleans, the most haunted city in America, it only heightened my curiosity. So get ready and travel with me into the swamp. <music> This week's topic is a little different. I've been wanting to talk about it ever since I heard about it, and what makes this story different is that it's really a two-part story. The first part is more fact than legend, although the truth is somewhat difficult to determine because it happened so long ago, and rumors are often more interesting than the truth. The second part is where the real mystery and spookiness come in. Imagine, if you will, the Louisiana of the early 1700s. New Orleans was already a bustling metropolitan port city, but the rest of the state, and it wasn't even a state yet, was untamed swamps and prairies. As busy as New Orleans was, there was one thing it lacked, women, and there was good reason for that. There were a few wealthy families in the city, but like most port cities, it was pretty violent and lawless place. Fur trappers, sailors, dock hands. Men not used to refinement and manners roamed the city, more likely to use fisticuffs to resolve disputes. Of course, there were women in New Orleans, but not the kind that the French nobility deemed appropriate for their citizens to start families with, mostly prostitutes, Native American women, and slaves. The men of New Orleans needed cultured French women to make their wives. The obvious solution was to send over women from France. It had actually been tried before in New France, that is, eastern Canada, specifically Quebec and Nova Scotia, and in Biloxi, Mississippi. In most cases, it had met with only varying degrees of success, but mostly failure. The first issue was the quality of the women being supplied. As you can imagine, for many young women, girls, really, the prospect of uprooting your pleasant life in Europe and moving across the ocean to an unfamiliar land with men of questionable morals wasn't very appealing. As a result, at least according to some accounts, many of the women were plucked from orphanages, brothels, or even prisons. We do not know this to be true, but it seems plausible. The origins of the casket girls of New Orleans is not entirely clear, Were they part of groups that were sent to Biloxi or Canada, or were they sent directly from France? It seems likely that the latter was the case, since many stories recount when the women left the boats it was noted how pale and sickly they looked, and that the brutal sun quickly burned their delicate skin. The trials and tribulations of a transatlantic voyage by ship, particularly in the early 18th century, would definitely weaken the human constitution. Weeks aboard a wooden ship with meager provisions and questionable sanitation surely took their toll. It can also be assumed that if the young women reportedly ages 14 to 17 were from the wealthier families, they were not accustomed to difficult conditions, meaning the voyage was likely harder on them than it would have been on others. Upon their arrival, the girls were taken under the care of the Ursuline sisters of New Orleans to be given housing and education. The Echelan sisters were themselves an interesting story. In 1727, French King Louis XV sent 14 nuns from Rouen to New Orleans to set up a hospital for the needy and to provide an education for the wealthier girls in the city. They completed their first convent in 1734. They faced many obstacles in getting established in the city, as you can imagine, but they were resolute and persistent. They established an orphanage and a hospital and cared for the disadvantage of the city, regardless of the color of their skin. Interestingly, the first pharmacist in the continental United States was an Ursuline sister named Sister Frances Xavier. The Ursuline sisters are still active in New Orleans to this day, though they have moved several times over the years, currently residing in the uptown area. Natural question is, where did these young girls get to name the Casket Girls? Now, this is where the two parts of the story diverge and things get interesting and complicated. When the girls arrived, it was reported that they arrived with caskets, spelled C-A-S-K-E-T-S, as in boxes for dead people. This is where the language barrier comes into play. What they actually brought with them were small chests or boxes called cassettes or caskets, spelled C-A-S-Q-U-E-T-T-E-S. So when people heard caskets, they automatically associated the term with large body-sized containers and wondered what on earth they could be using them for. And this is where we entered the realm of legend and what makes the story so fascinating, although almost certainly false. In 1751, a new Ursuline convent was completed adjacent to the original convent, the old one having succumbed to the harsh weather of New Orleans. This building is still in existence and has been added to the National Register of Historic Places. These caskets, as they were now referred to, were said to have been moved to the third-floor attic space of the convent to be stored. By now, the legend had been spread that the caskets had contained the bodies of vampires. Now, this is largely responsible for the vampire culture of New Orleans today, made hugely popular by Arthur Anne Rice in the hit movie Interview with the Vampire. It was reported that the vampires would emerge from their caskets at night and roam the city, committing their dreadful deeds and returning to the third floor of the convent before dawn. The rumor was that the casket girls themselves were fully aware of this and maybe even complicit in covering up the existence of these supernatural entities. Supposedly, the diocese took these reports seriously enough that workers would enter the third floor at night and nail the window shut to prevent the vampires from returning to the convent. This was not seen as a threat to the population of the city as it was assumed that trapped outside the convent, the vampires would die in the sunlight and not be capable of attacking anyone else. Of course, as time moved on and vampires became nothing more than characters in horror movies, The legend of the vampires of the Ursuline Convent largely died out. That's not to say there aren't some believers still around, and indeed there are some curious stories, some true and some probably not true, that make people wonder what is really going on on the third floor of the old Ursuline Convent. For example, while tours are given of the historic building, the third floor is off-limits. The diocese contends that it is only used for storage, but people who have seen it say that there's really not anything stored up there and that there are open areas that are the perfect size for storing rows of coffins. Now, what exactly that means is unclear, as it seems as if any large open space could be used for such a purpose, so that would not be suspicious. What is curious is that reportedly following the aftermath of the hurricane Katrina in 2005, one of the shutters that secured one of the third-floor windows was blown off. When it was reattached, blessed nails, that's in quotes, were sent from the Vatican and used to nail it shut once again. Whether this is true or not has not been established, but it definitely is bizarre if it is. Today the casket girls are seen in a positive light by most New Orleanians, sort of like the mothers of the cities, and for the most part that's true. The casket girls really did play a big part in making New Orleans a more civilized and family friendly place. But that is not the end of the story of the Ursuline convent. During the War of 1812, the convent was used as an infirmary for wounded soldiers, both US and British. There are also reports, reports denied by the diocese by the way, that the third floor was used at one time to house mentally ill patients. There are a couple of things that would seem to lend some credence to that story, though they are not definitive proof. One is that, of the few visitors who have been granted permission to to tour the third floor, some have noted that there is a chain or multiple chains hanging from the ceilings. Such chains could very well have been used to restrain disturbed patients. Another feature noted is that, at one end of the third floor, there is what is referred to as a Dutch door, This is a door that has two sections, a top and a bottom, and each one can be opened independently. Such a door could be used to distribute food or other items to residents without having to come in direct contact with them. This is the only area in the entire building where such a door exists. With such a history associated with the facility, is it any wonder that there are a number of stories associated with it? The only modern story associated with potential vampire activity is a 1970 story about a pair of journalists who spent the night camped out on the grounds of the convent, sending out cameras trained on the windows of the third floor to see if any vampires really did emerge during the night. The next morning, they were found dead with all the blood drained from their bodies. The cameras that had been set up had been mysteriously cut off in the middle of the night, and there was no clue as to how the two men had died. Another story, possibly related to the convent's history as an orphanage. On multiple occasions, people have heard sounds of children playing in the courtyard. As the people approach, the sounds get louder. However, when they get to the point where they are actually able to see the entire courtyard, no children are to be found. Some people have reported hearing screams or other sounds that would seem to be coming from people in pain, These could be linked to the convent's supposedly history as a mental asylum, or from its very real history as a military hospital. Many sites that have served as military hospitals throughout history are purportedly haunted, so this would not be that unusual. As could be expected, there have also been sightings of full-body apparitions of nuns in old-fashioned habits walking the grounds. While there are other far more well-known haunts in New Orleans having been raised in the Catholic faith, I find the Ursuline Convent to be particularly interesting to me personally. Have any of you ever had the opportunity to visit New Orleans? And do you have any favorite places? Or have you ever experienced anything paranormal in your visits? Visit us on the Swamp Gothic Facebook page and let us know. Well, that concludes this episode of Swamp Gothic, and as always, if you have any interest in ghost stories or horror, you can always visit my website at robertpickering.net or my Facebook page at Robert P. Pickering. We'll see you again next week on the Swamp Gothic Podcast.